Let's pray, and then we'll open up the Word. Rich morning today, Father. Thank you for your lavish grace upon us. And I pray that you'd bring your power upon us now, Lord, as we open up your word. Teach us by your spirit. Get me out of the way. Let there just be a a flow of your word and the Holy Spirit's teaching. And let us be transformed, I ask. All of us, me and all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pass out the Bibles, uh, just in case you don't have one. Raise your hand. I want to make sure you all have a Bible you can look on. We're going to look at, I think, five or six different passages this morning. So I want to get those all passed out. Be bold. Okay. Oh, somebody? All right. And how are we doing in memorizing Daniel 11.32? So we've been working on that um, as a church and our families and our home groups. Here's why we're memorizing that verse. I'm excited about what God's calling us to pursue in 2012. But to do that, we as a people need to stand firm in faith and we need to take action in advancing the gospel. Standing firm in faith, taking action, advancing the gospel. And in Daniel 11.32, Daniel tells us what we need to do in order to stand firm and take action. And it's right there in Daniel 11.32. So this is why we're taking four weeks at the beginning of this year to go through a series called Beholding God's Glory, where we're going deep in knowing God because of what Daniel 11.32 says. So let's, can we review it? Okay, it's right up there, in case you need to look. Daniel 11.32 Let's try that again. Get ready? Daniel 11.32. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Daniel 11.32. Let's do that one more time. Daniel 11.32. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Daniel 11.32. All right. So, so far in this series, we've talked about the holiness of God. That's first week. And then last week we talked about the righteousness of God. And now this morning we're going to talk about a topic that is is painful, uh, but also crucial to talk about, and it's the wrath of God. And here's why it's painful. A couple of reasons. One reason is because every single one of us in this room has felt the fact that God's feeling wrath towards us because of our sin, and that's painful to remember. Okay? Also, I would guess in a group this size, some of you are still under the wrath of God. And so to be reminded of that for me this morning is going to feel painful to you. Um, Another reason we feel painful about this topic is because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who we love, endured God's wrath on the cross. And so thinking about that is painful. And another reason is that we all have family members, um, neighbors, friends, work associates who are right now facing God's wrath, and it's painful to remember that. So it's a painful topic to talk about. So why talk about it? Because it's crucial. In his word, God tells us a lot about his wrath. And the reason he does is because if we will understand it biblically and think about it deeply, we will be transformed in a couple of ways. One is we will praise God for his righteousness. When we understand it rightly, we will say yes. We'll praise him for it. Another impact, what I've experienced this week, is we will love what Jesus did on the cross even more when we see the wrath that he 
endured for us. Another impact is that we'll stop playing footsie with sin. Because we'll see what is at stake in pursuing sin. And another impact is that we will go to the lost. We'll weep for the lost. We'll plead with the lost when we see what they're facing. Okay? So let's start with this question. Does God have wrath? I mean, you might be thinking, I thought God was love. And he is, powerfully, more than you'll ever imagine. I hope you can see that this morning too. But the same Bible that says God is love also says that God has wrath. Let me show you two scriptures. Let's turn to Isaiah 66, 15. And that's page 626 in the Bible we just passed out. I want to give you one Old Testament scripture and one New Testament. Some people think that Old Testament, that's where God's wrathful. New Testament, he's over it. It's not what the Bible teaches. Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. Should make you tremble. Talking here about the end of history. And notice the words that are used there. Anger. Fury and rebuke. Okay, then turn to Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. This is way at the end of the New Testament, way far to the right. That's page 1031 in the Bibles we passed out. Look at how John describes what will happen at the end of history. Isaiah's described the end of history. What John describes here is the end of history. Look at how John describes what's going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Revelation 6.16 And they, who's the they here? It's those who have continued to refuse to bend the knee before Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior and treasure. They called to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So the end of history, the great day of their wrath. Whose wrath? Him who's seated on the throne, that's God the Father. And you've ever noticed that phrase, the wrath of the Lamb? The wrath of Jesus Christ as well. So at the end of history, there's going to be an outpouring of wrath from Jesus and his Father. Now why? It's because of how we've responded to God. Because of how all of us have responded to God. How have we responded to God? Uh, There's lots of passages, but let me show you one in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Romans 1, 18 through 21. That's page 939 in the Bibles we passed out. Romans chapter 1. Here's where Paul describes what God has done and how we've responded. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I notice God has revealed himself clearly to each of us and everyone who's ever lived and whoever will live. God has revealed himself clearly to us through creation. Okay, it's through creation. I mean, just think about it. Just, it's good just to stop and ponder. You are an amazing creature. How did you and all these other amazing creatures and everything that exists, how did this all get here? How did this happen? I mean, just ponder that. You have a, I mean, you're alive. You're a conscious being. You're, you're understanding words that this conscious being is saying. And you love and you laugh and you plan and you purpose. How did you get here? And then think about the, the body that you have, this amazingly complex, phenomenally orchestrated body. I was just reading this last week. Did you realize that you have an automatic leak? detection and repair system in your body so that when you when you like scrape your knee right instead of leaking to death which is what would happen you'd bleed to death right instead of leaking to death this incredibly complex now you're wondering what is that picture that's that's the schematic diagram of this leak detection and repair system that you have automatically things all start going to work and tell your body and, and so you, you put this, this, this patch, it's called a blood clot, okay, clots on, on your knee, right? You, you have had this happen to you, right? Okay, this is what happened. And it's not that all of a sudden, like, all your blood clots, you'd be dead, or that just a part of your knee scrape is, is, is the leak is fixed, you, you'd leak to death. And the other thing is, you don't even need to think anything about this. It's not like, oh, I forgot to clot today. You know, ah, no problem here. And this is just one of, of hundreds of just amazing, I mean, do you realize what you have here? And then we live in an amazing, on an amazing earth and an amazing solar system, I mean, where sun shines on you and you get vitamin D. And photosynthesis makes strawberries. I mean, just the list just goes on and on and on. And so we have to, to ask the question, did all of this, you, your body, this world, the solar system, did all of this happen just by matter randomly interacting with matter over billions of years? It's impossible. God has shown us clearly. You're alive. How'd you get here? Your body, amazing. This world we live in. God has shown you by, the, by giving you life, creating you in this amazing place. He is overflowing with joy and goodness, and love. You are the the outflow of God's heart. There's a God, and he's full of joy. And he's perfectly wise. Look at what he's made, how you function. And he's infinitely powerful. Look Look at the vastness of the solar system in the universe. So deep down inside, Romans 1 says, if you're honest with yourself, you agree, deep down inside, you know 
there is a God who exists, who is good, and who is infinitely wise, and who is amazingly powerful. You know that. But what have we all done? We've all known that. No one can plead ignorance. What have we all done? Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. God created you, created me, placed us here, and every one of us has rebelled against him, turned our backs to him, said not interested. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to obey you. We've all rebelled against God. Think of it like this. Imagine there's, there's a, a sea captain who builds this amazing luxury yacht. State-of-the-art equipment. Luxury cabins. Packs the galley full of this most amazing food and drink. And then he invites people for free to come and join him on this amazing cruise to the Caribbean. All right? Now, how would you feel about those people if you heard that on the way they mutinied because they wanted to run the ship and they threw the captain overboard? That's what you've done. That's what I've done. So how should God respond? How should he respond to this? To understand how God responds and why he responds, we need to go back then to God's holiness and God's righteousness. I want you to to feel the, the rightness of this. It all starts with God being holy. What does that mean? His perfections set him infinitely above everything else that exists. Just be in awe of God for a moment. God is this being who has always been with no beginning. Everything else in existence has a beginning. Only God has had no beginning. He's infinite in power. I mean, look at what he's made. He spoke the universe, the heavens and the earth, into existence. Amazing power. And then his sheer goodness in creating you, giving you life, God is perfectly good, perfectly loving. He knows everything. He's sovereign over everything. He's full of joy in the fellowship of the Trinity. God's perfection set him infinitely above everything else that is. God's holy. That's what that means. So what's righteous then for a holy God to do? What's the right thing for God to do? As God looks at his infinite perfections which set him above everything else that is, righteousness means you respond rightly to reality. So what's the right thing for God to do when he sees the reality that he exists infinitely perfect? Holy. What's the right thing for God to do? We saw last week. The right thing for God to do, just what Kim mentioned, is to do everything he does, to, to passionately pursue everything, to uphold his holiness, and to display his holiness. He's passionate to honor his holiness and to show his holiness. So when God comes up against something in reality that loves his holiness worships his holiness, trusts his perfection, honors his perfection. He's full of joy. He blesses that, whatever that is. That feels right, right? 
So what does God do when he comes up against something in, in reality that desecrates his holiness? That profanes his holiness? He's angry. And he's passionately pursuing punishing it. And that's the right thing for God to do. Do you feel that? Think about it like this. Any uh, Yosemite fans here? I know the Ramazinos are Yosemite fans, okay? There's Half Dome, all right? Think about Half Dome. Half Dome is an absolutely one-of-a-kind geologic phenomenon. It's beautiful. Jan and I went there last year, went to the Yosemite last year. It was amazing. It's just every time you see it, it's just like, wow. Pictures are, are awesome, but the reality is awesome. One of a kind, beautiful phenomenon. People travel from all over the world to come see it. People take pictures of it all the time. It's just an amazing, amazing phenomenon. Half tone. How would you feel if you read in the paper tomorrow that some graffiti artist with indelible ink spray painted his tag massively on the face of Half Dome so that forever Half Dome was defaced. Would there be something in your heart? It's like, that is wrong. Anybody feel angry towards that graffiti artist? Anybody sense that is so wrong to dishonor something of such value would you feel like he should be punished? Yes. And it would be righteous. It would be a right thought. And the point is that that's what we have all done towards God. The reason we'd feel like that graffiti artist should be punished is because he's dishonored something of great worth, great glory. God is of infinitely great worth and of infinitely great glory. And we've all dishonored him. I've dishonored him this morning. And, and you, you have too. I mean, just, here, here's how my dad likes to describe it. This has always been helpful for me. He's a Southern California guy, but I'll translate it to the Bay Area. Okay. When, I, when I've worried this morning about how, how this morning's going to go, it's like I'm standing up on top of Mount Umanum. Mount Umanum, okay? I'm, I'm on top of Mount Umanum, and I'm shouting out, God cannot be trusted. His promises are not true. He's lying. When I'm worried and not resisting it and just kind of getting sucked into it, that's what I'm proclaiming to the universe and I'm dishonoring God. When me or when you, when, when you're bored, what are you proclaiming to the universe? You're standing up on top of an and you're proclaiming there is nothing of beauty grandeur, majesty, or glory that's worth being captured by right now. Right? And that defames God. It desecrates His glory. If you're bound up with greed or with lust, say for example, then there you are. You're back up on Mount Amunam again. Okay? This time you're shouting out, when God says it's in His presence that there's fullness of joy, hokum, bogus. He's lying. Don't trust Him. Go for those things and those things, not him. And we're profaning his glory. We're desecrating his holiness. So that's why God has wrath against us. Because all of us have repeatedly 
dishonored his glory. Now, what exactly is God's wrath? Give me some misunderstandings about it. And God's wrath is his deliberate, righteous, deliberate, righteous passion to punish those who dishonor his infinite glory. It's deliberate, righteous passion to punish those who dishonor his glory. Each of those words is important. It's deliberate. The reason I want to, what I'm trying to get at with that word is, it's not that he kind of loses his temper or blows his stack, this kind of emotional outburst. It's, it's deliberate. My dad likes to say, talking about my dad a lot this morning, I love my dad. He likes to say that God's wrath is a slow-burning fuse, whereas his mercy is like a 38 revolver with a hair trigger. Okay? God's wrath is a slow-burning fuse. Slow. 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 Okay? And when he finally chooses to express wrath, it's his choice. He says, enough. It's time to punish. It's deliberate. It's also righteous. I want to really stress this. God is not a sadist who enjoys punishing people. Ezekiel 16, God does not delight in the, in the death of the wicked. So why does he? It's because he sees the wicked in the bigger picture of how they've desecrated his glory. They've seen that, that the wicked have, and this includes all of us, have profaned something of infinite holiness and worth, namely his own glory. And so it's his righteousness when he sees the beauty, the truth, the holiness that's been defamed. It's his righteousness, not some kind of a sadistic delight in causing pain, but it's his righteousness. He is passionate to uphold and display the glory of his name. And so when he sees his name being profaned in his righteousness, he must punish So it's righteous. It's a right thing. So God's wrath is his deliberate righteous passion to punish those who dishonor his infinite glory. See, now right now, the fuse is still burning. Okay? It's still burning. But the day will come in history, could be tonight. Could be 100 years from now. We don't know. But the day will come when God is going to choose to bring history to a close. And that's when he will pour his wrath out fully as he casts people into hell forever. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, to see this description of hell. It's Revelation 14, page 1036 in the Bibles that we're passing out. This is one of the most terrifying passages that I have found in the Bible about God's wrath. Revelation 14, 9 through 11, page 1036. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, I just need to mention, that's referring to those who will not bend the knee before Jesus and trusting him. If, if you're not bending your knee before Jesus Christ and trusting him, then, then this is you. Okay? 
So what's true of, of those? Verse 10, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. See why I say this is terrifying? I mean, here, here's the things that just are horrible to ponder. Tormented with fire and sulfur. That's horrifying. Forever and ever. That is inconceivable. It's true. It's what's going to happen. We can't conceive of that. And no rest day or night. This is God's holy, righteous wrath and what we all deserve. So this is one way God pours out his wrath. Okay? But this is not the only way God pours out his wrath. There's another way God pours out his wrath. What's the other way? How else does God pour out his wrath? We just read about the the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. What's the other way God pours out his wrath? Remember Gethsemane? Remember as Jesus is deeply troubled, praying with sweat like drops of blood. Remember what he says? Father, take this cup from me. What cup? The cup of the wine of God's anger poured full strength in his wrath. Father, take this cup from me. Now why did Jesus have to pray that? Here's why. It's because the Father and Jesus the Son have chosen to do something astonishing. Just jaw-dropping. They've chosen to display the perfection of their love, the, the goodness of their love, the, the massive beauty of their love in the most astonishing way. They've chosen to display the majesty, the beauty, the holiness, the wonder of their love by having Jesus endure God's wrath in our place. That's why. See, God can't just sweep his wrath under the rug. It's like, well, just get over it. Because his wrath is righteous, it has to be expressed. It has to be poured out. The punishment has to happen. Because it's righteous, if it doesn't, then he's unrighteous, which would dishonor, he'd be dishonoring his own name. He's not going to do that. I'm so glad he's not going to do that. And so Jesus willingly went to the cross in order to display the wonder, the grandeur, the beauty, the perfection of his love. He willingly went to the cross because he loves you. And the, the terror of Revelation 14, 9 through 11 is all condensed into an hour's sequence of God pouring his wrath out upon Jesus 
And Jesus was so frightened by that that he sweat like drops of blood and said, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not my will. No, Father, I want to do this. We will display our love. And it's broke the Father's heart. The Father wants to have you see how much He loves us. God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father sent His blameless, perfect, holy Son. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Holy, sinless, spotless, perfect. And the Father, with tears, poured His white, hot wrath out upon Jesus, the wrath that I deserved and the wrath that you deserved in order to display the wonder, the beauty, the perfection of God's love. And so here's what this means. And that is if you, when you, if you have bent the knee before Jesus in trust, if you've received him into your life as your savior, as your Lord, as your heart satisfying treasure, not that you've become perfect, but you've received him into your life. You're trusting him. You've, you've bent the knee. You've surrendered to him. And all the wrath, the white, hot passion to punish that God has felt towards you was diverted and was poured out upon Jesus in punishing Jesus. And so, you're forgiven. And you will never taste even a drop of God's wrath. Jesus absorbed all the wrath that you had coming to you. He absorbed it all in himself. You will never experience even a drop of God's wrath. Instead, from now on, God is rejoicing over you to do you good with all his heart and all his soul. Amazing love. Like, the, like John Wesley, or Charles Wesley's hymn, And can it be that thou my God should die for me? Amazing love. That's what he's done. How should this impact us? When we see God's wrath biblically, clearly, with, with thought, pondering, it'll, it'll change us. I hope, I hope you're feeling some change here. I want to call us to four changes. I want to call you to praise God's righteousness. I would guess that before you came in this morning, some of you were a little uncomfortable about God's wrath, a little embarrassed about it. Ah, really hell? I mean, and I hope that from seeing his holiness and his righteousness and what we've said about his wrath, half dome, cruise ship, luxury yacht, I hope you can see that because God is holy, his perfection set him infinitely above everything else that is, and because God is righteous, the right response is to, with all his heart, uphold and display his glory, that therefore it's absolutely right for God to punish sin because it's, it's an infinite outrage against his glory, so the punishment must be infinite. And I hope you feel that so that you can say, yes, yes, God, thank you. I praise you for your righteousness. Yes, it makes me tremble, it makes me weep over people, but yes, it's right. I hope you feel that. Second, we will love the cross. We will love Jesus. We will love the Father for doing this. See, the more clearly you see the horror of God's wrath, the more clearly you'll see the wonder of God's love and being willing to pour His wrath out upon His Son, 
And the more clearly you'll see the wonder of Jesus being willing to endure the horror of God's wrath in your place so that you can be forgiven. So, so just be struck with... The cross shows us lots of things, but one thing it should show us is the wrath of God. And then we should say, thank you, Jesus, I love you. Father, thank you. So seeing God's wrath clearly will cause you to love the cross more deeply. Third, we will fear God's wrath. Why? I thought you said if if we surrender and trust Jesus, we'll never taste any of God's wrath, and we won't. It's absolutely true. So why fear it? Here's why. If you turn towards sin and persist in sin, that could mean that you've never really trusted Christ, which would mean that you will face God's wrath. If you turn towards sin and persist in sin without confession, without fighting, I'm not talking about, none of us are perfect this side of heaven, okay? But I'm talking about persisting in sin without repentance, without confession. That could mean that you've never trusted Christ. And so you will face his wrath. So fear, fear is wrath in that way. When Jan and I were in Yosemite last, last year, went to Glacier Point. And at Glacier Point, you come way up right to the edge. They've got these rails here. And you can look over the edge. And you look down, 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 down. And as I looked down, I felt fear. Why? Not because I was going to be destroyed. I, wasn't, I was not going to be destroyed. But I, because I knew that if I did something stupid, I would be. Right? If I lean too far, I'm going to be toast. Or dust or whatever. Okay, it won't be pretty. If I lean too far... That's how the fear of God works for saved people. You understand, if you lean too far, you'll be destroyed. So how do you keep from leaning? Oh God, I believe, help my unbelief. I confess, help me. Not by your own bootstraps, making yourself good enough. But see, if, if, you, if you're sinning with a high hand, saying, I'm not going to confess, I'm not going to repent, then, friend, you are in deep trouble. If you're sinning, saying, God, help me, I'm struggling. Brothers and sisters, pray for me. You're in a good place. Big difference. So in that sense, fear God's wrath. And then fourth, we will go to the lost. This this is painful to think about. But for the sake of God being glorified, for the sake of your joy, for the sake of family members you have, Uh, neighbors you have, friends you have, work associates that you have. I I just want to press this home. I want you to feel this. Your family members, your neighbors, your work associates, your friends who don't know the Lord are facing God's wrath forever. They're facing God's wrath forever. And you... You have the answer. You have the answer. You have the answer. So when you see the reality of God's wrath and the beauty of the gospel, there's another way that God's wrath could be poured out. There's another way. Does your neighbor know there's another way? Does your work associate know there's another way? 
does your family member, your friend, know there's another way? See, when, when, we, when we see God's wrath, God can use this to make us weep over the lost, like Jesus wept over Jerusalem, to make us love the lost because we care about them, to make us go to the lost because we have the good news, and to move us to share the lost because there is good news. So when we see God's wrath, let it stir you to go to the lost. Who do you need to go to this week and just say, in church Sunday we talked about God's wrath and I need to talk to you. Can we talk? I don't know what you're going to think about this, but I, I care about you. Let me tell you what we, what we saw in the Bible and just share the gospel. And God, through you, just simply stutteringly, mumblingly, do the best you can, he could bring the power of the Holy Spirit upon that person and they'd be born again. Praise God's righteousness. Love the cross. Fear God's wrath. And go to the lost. Mercy Hill Church, those are our marching orders this morning. Let's say to the Lord, yes, sir, let's stand. I want to pray this over us. Weighty, painful, transforming truths, Father, in your word this morning. Change my heart more, I pray. Change each of our hearts more, I pray. God, I pray that right now you'd save people here who have never bent the knee before Jesus. Right now. If you've never bent the knee before Jesus, do it now. I plead with you. There's another way for God's wrath to be poured out. Please, bend the knee before Jesus and receive what he's done. And let's let the Lord stir in your heart. Is there, are you playing footsie with sin? Or is there some area of, of sin in your life that you are sinning with a high hand and you're not bringing it before the Lord saying, help me, help me. He will help you. Oh, he will help you. But you've got to bring it to him. And is there a neighbor or a work associate or a family member or a friend that the Lord wants you to reach out to this week and love and share with? Lord, move upon us, I pray. And we just say thank you. Thank you, Father, for being willing to pour your wrath out upon your Holy Son instead of upon us. And thank you, Jesus, for being willing to drink the cup to the very bottom so that we wouldn't have to. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.